Hello and welcome to The London Show, our new podcast about all things London, the greatest city on earth. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of I Never Knew That About London, and with me for this first edition of The London Show are a trio of London grandees, whose combined knowledge of this great city would make even Ronnie and Reggie Cray blush. In the blue corner, we have Mark Mason, author of the acclaimed Walk the Lines, a book described by The Spectator, no less, as endlessly fascinating, in which Mark walks the entire length of the London underground, overground. Mark, welcome. You must have walked a fair few miles. It was 400 and something. I think it was closer to 500 and 400. I haven't looked at the back of the book for a while, Chris, so I can't give you the exact figure. But I have to say, as we're recording this in the the run-up to Christmas 2022, I'm thinking back 12 years, which is when I did the walks. And my final walk, I did walked each line separately, one chapter per line. And the Metropolitan Line walk was in the run-up to Christmas 2010 when for the three days, it's 21st, 22nd, 23rd of December, which is when I was walking. And you think of the Metropolitan Line territory, it's out in the countryside up near Watford. You know, it's seriously rural, a lot of that, and Amersham and Cheshire. Um, the weather was the first thing on the news for all three days. It was Heathrow was closed. They knew that Heathrow was going to be closed for a week. It was the worst Christmas London had seen uh, literally for decades, I think. Um, so I've got some particularly... Uh, in a way, fond memories, but in a way, horrific memories of walking through the snow um, exactly 12 years ago. Yes, I guess the fact that you remember it so well, Mark, just demonstrates how rare it is to have snow in London at Christmas nowadays. Of course, white Christmases in London were not always so rare. Between around 1550 and 1850, there was what is known as the Little Ice Age, and pretty much every year was a white Christmas. The weather got so cold that the Thames would sometimes freeze over and you could skate on it. A bit like Somerset House these days. They even held frost fairs on the river with pop-up shops and pubs and playgrounds. It all sounds rather fun. Of course, the Thames was wider and shallower then and more prone to freezing. And the narrow arches of the old London Bridge, I think there were 19 or 20 of them, got blocked up with ice and acted as a sort of dam. But once the bridge came down in 1831 and the embankments were built up, the river became too deep and fast running to freeze any more, and so the last frost fair was, I think, in 1814. But back to my guests. At the head of the table we have Mike Patterson, founder and chairman of the London Historians, a membership club which brings together people interested in London's history from all over the world. Indeed, The four of us met through the London Historians. How many members do you have now, Mike? At the moment we have, uh, I'm never sure the precise number, but it's between 650 and 700 members. Um, Most of those, for obvious reasons, are Londoners, but we have a lot of members uh, throughout the country. And indeed, we have members um, overseas, a lot of support from North America and uh, quite a few Australians as well. So, So we're global. Well, London itself is certainly global. In fact, it was probably the world's first global city. And now, last but certainly not least, welcome to Footprints of London guide, Rob Smith. Rob, tell us a little bit about Footprints of London. Hi there. Yeah, it was an idea we put together after a group of us had studied on the Clerkenwell Islington Guide course way back in 2011. And you know what it's like when you're doing a course 
uh, evening class, you often go to the pub on the last night and then realise you really liked each other and then never see each other again. So we thought uh, we'll remedy that by setting up a company to put on walks about uh, our favourite things in London. And uh, we'd run it as a collective. So we've been going just 11 years now. And we've got 35 guides with us now. And the, the idea hasn't really changed very much from the beginning. It's all about walks, which we're interested in. So we don't always pander for what was popular. We just like talk, talking about what we like talking about. And I think that's um, been appreciated by people. Well, as you can see, we've got a cracking lineup for this first edition of The London Show. And since it's Christmas and I have a book to sell, The Book of Christmas, available online and at all good bookshops, we have decided, or rather I have decided, to talk about London and Christmas. London, you see, is uniquely associated with Christmas, thanks largely to Charles Dickens, sometimes known as the man who invented Christmas, in particular in his short novel A Christmas Carol, which introduced many of the elements that make up the modern Christmas. Carol singers, presents, log fires, turkey, plum pudding, and above all, Christmas as a family occasion. And it is, of course, set in London. Scrooge's office being somewhere off Cornhill in the city, and the Cratchit's home, scene of that wonderful Christmas dinner, being in Bayham Street, Camden, where Dickens himself lived for a while as a boy. And another feature of Christmas in A Christmas Carol is snow. The book was published in 1843 when they were still living through the Little Ice Age. Hence, for Dickens, and therefore all of us, Christmas in London means snow. Do you have any memories of London in the snow, Mike? Um, well, I came to London quite recently. Well, I say recently. I'm talking about nine, 1977 um, as, as a young fellow. Um, and, and and we're talking about what London gives its Christmas character. And, and the one thing I, I think which is a false thing is that uh, London is very photogenic, uh, very photogenic. And you get this particularly on Christmas cards um with westminster and um red buses and all this sort of stuff and snow on the ground um where the fact of the matter is as we know that it snows on christmas day um and that's that in itself has become a christmas tradition you can go and lay a bet on whether it's going to snow on christmas day and i, I don't know where they decide that i think there's a rooftop somewhere where the bet has got a measuring machine or something like that um but it happens quite rarely maybe once every I don't know, five or six or seven years. And my first Christmas in London, um, which was in 77, as I say, it snowed heavily at Christmas then. And for me, I just this is marvellous. It's just as I always pictured London to be. Um, and I was living at that time in a flat in Greenford, um, a very west of London, west-ish, I suppose, uh, which is very close to Horsenden Hill. Um, I don't know if any of you have been up there. So we were up there, of course, with sleds and, and, and tea trays and, and, and black plastic bags, which are very good. Bin bags are very good coming down a slope, um, unless you hit a rock. <laughs> yeah, we, I remember clearly doing that. And, um, and, and to me, it was my first, my first Christmas in London. I just thought it was a quintessential um, London-English uh, snowy Christmas, which, of course, it wasn't. The great thing about Twitter these days or whatever social media you prefer is that in the old days, you know, I live an hour or so outside London. Uh, if it snowed, I wouldn't get to know about it. Whereas now, not only do I know that it snowed in London, I'm seeing the pictures of it and seeing the pictures. Chris Hope, a friend of mine who um, 
political writer on the Telegraph was tweeting yesterday. He'd been walking around Westminster as he normally would, and he'd taken pictures of Parliament Square and different bits of Westminster in the snow. And it was, as you say, Mike, it was like a Christmas card. It was beautiful. Funny you should mention Christmas cards, because the Christmas card was, of course, invented in London in 1843, the same year that A Christmas Carol came out. Um, it was the it was the brainchild of a chap called Henry Cole, who was the first director of the Victoria and Albert Museum. There's a wing of the museum named after him on Exhibition Road. And he lived just across from the museum at um, 33 Thurlow Square, which I note is being advertised at the moment for rent at £15,000 a week. <laughs> Amongst Henry Cole's many achievements, he helped Roland Hill introduce the Penny Post, and he is thought to have designed the world's first postage stamp, the Penny Black. Now, Henry Cole wanted to encourage people to use the post and also to save himself some time, having to write to all his friends at Christmas individually. So he came up with the idea of a card that he could send to everyone. And he got a mate of his, John Horsley, to design the card, showing a family enjoying Christmas fare, above the words, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. At the top was the word to, followed by a line where you could fill in the name. There was a tradition of creating cards uh, going back to the earlier times in the Georgian period where school children who'd been a fee-paying school would be encouraged to send a little sample of their writing to their parents at Christmas with a coloured card on the back. And that was where you could sort of check to see how well the school was doing. So you could compare the writing for this year to last year. And if it was pretty much the same, well, what have I paid all this money for? <laughs> It was a Georgian equivalent of an Ofsted league table, was it, Rob? <laughs> a lot of those those inventions, those ideas we have of Christmas do come from this Victorian reinvention of Christmas. In the Georgian period, it had become very unfashionable, and it was just seen as this drunken festival, often very popular in rural areas and not the sort of thing that Londoners would get involved in. And so that idea of reinventing Christmas as more of a family occasion, a time of good cheer, and a time of uh, charity is is the sort of thing that's associated with Christmas Carol. And we, we hold that as Christmas now, but Christmas has meant different things at different times. I think that's one of the things you pick up. The older you get, the more you realise that all these traditions that you think are timeless or certainly go back many centuries are, as you say, recent inventions. I mean, I know Matt Brown from Londonist, is, I think he was the one that has picked up on this. But the thing about the ravens at the tower... What, if the ravens leave the tower, the kingdom will fall? I think that's even early 20th century, Matt's pinned that down to, isn't it? It doesn't go back centuries in the way that you think it does. Yeah, the so-called traditions, and, and, and that's, that's a question I'll, I'll, I'll ask you in a second, but the the business of the lights, the Regent Street lights and the Oxford Street lights and the Norwegian or the Norwegian tree for obvious reasons, um, all of those things are post-war. Um, but we have heavily associate them with being Christmas traditions. And my question, therefore, is um, how do we define a tradition? How, how long does something have to be around till it becomes a tradition as such? Well, Victorian changes in Christmas, they're, they're also a little bit political and social. So um, the idea of people being having plenty on their plates at Christmas it was a way of saying, yeah, look at British life. It's the envy of the rest of the world. If you look at Mrs. Beaton's Christmas uh, celebrations. Her talk about the turkey is saying like this is a sign that uh, the British Empire can produce wealth for all of it and plenty for all of its citizens. So 
showing that Christmas was a time of of uh, good cheer was important from that point of view. Although obviously Victorian society, you know, savage differences between rich and poor, uh, as which is displayed in Dickens' work. Yeah, Mrs. Beaton, by the way, Mrs. Beaton, who died at twenty eight. Everyone always thinks of her as this nice, two, two, two fat lady, sort of, you know, old cook or the equivalent of someone off Bake Off, one of the older presenters on that. But actually, she died when she was 28. Yes, she was only 24 or 25, wasn't she, when she wrote her famous book of household management. Now, uh, that came out in 1861, but it was an earlier cook, Eliza Acton, who first wrote down the traditional recipe for Christmas pudding 16 years earlier in 1845 in her Modern Cookery for Private Families. The other thing, just to go back, what you were saying about um, traditions in Trafalgar Square, Mike, was uh, the Christmas tree, the, the Norwegian Christmas tree in Trafalgar Square, always reminds me of Churchill and Special Brew. Do we know about this? That, that Norway's thank you for Britain's help during the Second World War is the Christmas tree they send us every year. Um, Denmark's thank you to Churchill was that Churchill at some point had said that he never drank lager because it wasn't strong enough for him. Famously, he liked his strong drink. So Den- um, Carlsberg specifically invented special brew at 9 or 10% or whatever it is, just for Winston Churchill as a way of saying thank you. So that Christmas tree always reminds me of special brew. I bet the carol singers who gather round the tree most nights would appreciate a bit of special brew to warm them up. Although I suppose the lyrics might get a bit mangled. <laughs> Actually, for most Londoners, it's probably the turning on of the Trafalgar Square Christmas tree lights that marks the real start of Christmas. I think it's the first Thursday in December they turn them on, isn't it? It's one of the things that they have managed to keep to December because Regent Street seems to do the Christmas lights in August these days. Yes, I was reading that Selfridges this year opened their Christmas department on August the 1st which was the earliest of anywhere in the world. Well, I worked in um, my first one of my fir- my first actual job in London when I moved down in 92. It was 30 years ago, pretty much to the month, was uh, working in the Harrods Christmas card department. And my jo- I only, In the end, I only did six weeks because I then got an offer of a better job, which I went off and did. But the six weeks were, the f- were September and the first half of October. Yeah, even 30 years ago, Harrods was opening its Christmas department in September. In Victorian times, it was considered bad luck to put any decorations up before Christmas Eve. But going back to Harrods for a minute, Harrods was the first department store in London to have a Father Christmas in 1908. And their Christmas grotto, of course, is famously a favourite of the royal family. There are pictures of the late Queen visiting as a princess with her sister Margaret. And of course, Harrods installed the first escalator in the whole of the empire in 1898 to take people up to their Christmas bazaar with um, with members of staff standing at the top handing out brandy to the men and smelling salts to the ladies in case they were overcome. <laughs> A tradition, I feel, should have been maintained. Yeah, which everyone now, all the cynics now think that was just a publicity stunt, that, of course, nobody was... Um was so worried or was so it was so physically affected by it that they needed the brand it was nice policy stunt which of course that that escalator always reminds me of the first one on the tube which i think was earl's court anyone i think yes, it was yeah. earl's court yeah earl's court was the first one to have a, a, an escalator and again supposedly to encourage people who were scared of it but i'm sure as a publicity stunt to, to reassure people that this newfangled invention called the escalator was safe to ride, London Underground, or whatever they were called back then, put on um, 
uh, a one-legged man, a man with a wooden leg called Bumper Harris uh, to ride up and down on the escalator to assure people that even if a guy with a wooden leg was found it safe, then they should as well. And I once mentioned it to somebody who just heard me say Bumper Harris. They didn't hear the rest of it. And they said, who was Bumper Harris? Was he Bomber Harris's less aggressive younger brother? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> By the way, uh, before I forget to say it, Chris, ever since your introduction a few minutes ago, I've been meaning to pick you up just to provide a little note of um, sorry, argumentativeness, if that's a word. Uh, just um, One of the things that really intrigues me about London is you said that between us we know more about London even than Ronnie and Reggie. And you reminded me, just to give another plug for my book, I promise you I'm not trying to do this, but one of the guys I spoke to for Walk the Lines was John Pearson, who um, died a few months ago. Uh, obviously the bi the biographer of the craze and spent a lot of time with them it was was originally going to be writing their autobiography and had been paid an awful lot of money by Ronnie and Reggie uh, but then while he was with them they got nicked and sent down for life so he ended up writing the official biography much more honest book than he could have written but anyway one of the things that I got from him was just how little London really is a city, certainly for EastEnders, certainly 50, 60, 70 years ago with them, that once when they were on the run from the police in their relatively younger days, they went and hid from, obviously they were Bethnal Green and Valence Road and round there, uh, they went and hid from the police by going and hiding out in a hotel in Finsbury Park, which... <laughs> you know, was the other side of the world as far as the East End was concerned in those days. And you'll speak to East Enders even now who've got relatives who would literally have grown up in the East End and never gone to Oxford Circus or Piccadilly Circus, just would not go to the West End. We get places like Little Italy in uh, the 1920s, 1930s, the area around uh, Clerkenwell, uh, just in the what was the Valley of the River Fleet. So it's set down below places like Rosebury Avenue. And that was a world within a world where people would seldom go anywhere else apart from perhaps to go down to uh, to Soho to work in restaurants that they might have worked in there. And uh, you'd get people who spoke this strange Cockney Italian hybrid and it was a language within itself. And you look at guidebooks and they recommend that you go and visit Little Italy as a exotic place to go and uh, see a sort of little sample of Europe within uh, Italy itself. And they, of course, had their own gangsters, the Sabini gang. Are they still around? <laughs> uh, the, well, I've done a few walks about the Sabini gang. And um, I've when I saw people with the surname Sabini sign up for them, I was very worried indeed. <laughs> turned out to be a very charming uh, old lady who was um, very apologetic about what her ancestors had done in the 1930s. So I've met quite a few descendants of the Sabinis over the year, and they've all been very charming, although one group of them did seem very acquainted with what the London underworld of today. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, perhaps there might be some links. I don't know if the Sabinis would attend, but um, every year they still put on a special Christmas service for London's Italian community at that lovely Italian church in Clerkenwell Road, St Peter's. Oh, honestly, the, that area has changed so much. It's, it's really sad to read the oral histories of what it was like in the 1930s when it was such a lively place, and now it's just a quiet back street with empty flats and um, empty offices that are just quiet at, at the weekend. Yeah, I once walked my parents. I wasn't meaning to walk them there. We just ended up... They, they'd 
I'm not from London originally. They, they, you know, I, I was still living in London at that point, and they'd come down from where they lived just for a day out, and and we happened to be walking through Lincoln's Inn Fields, and my dad was just staggered that there'd be somewhere that quiet as, as the you know the main square. In, in the middle of London, it's between Covent Garden and, you know, you go one way, you've got Covent Garden, the other way, you're down pretty near the Strand and all those busy bits. But that particular bit is absolutely back in Dickens' time, all the lawyers working away. You imagine them with quill pens still, it's that quiet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, talking of Dickens again, that reminds me of yet another Christmas tradition that was invented in London around the same time as A Christmas Carol came out. And that is the Christmas Cracker. In fact, if you go down to Finsbury Square just north of the city, and go to the southeast corner, you'll find an elaborate Victorian Gothic drinking fountain, dedicated by Tom and Walter Smith to their mother Martha, which stands on the site of, or very close to the site of, the world's first Christmas cracker factory, built by the Smith boys in the 1880s to manufacture their father Tom's invention. Tom Smith was a confectioner with a shop in the Goswell Road, and one day in the 1840s he took a trip to Paris where he came across the bonbon, a sugared almond wrapped in a twist of tissue paper, which he brought back to London to sell in his shop as a Christmas treat. And to spice it up a bit, he decided to insert a love motto into the wrapping and twisted both ends of the tissue paper to create the style of wrapping we see on a lot of sweets today. The almond was soon replaced with toys and trinkets, and then one night in 1850, so the legend goes, Tom was sitting by the fire, just as I am now, when the cracking of the burning logs gave him the idea of creating what he later called a bang of expectation to occur when the wrapping was broken. And thus, the Christmas cracker was born. I wonder how his experiments on working out the size of the bang went, because if he'd got it wrong, I mean, that could have been the end of the Christmas cracker story before it even started. <laughs> well, yes, it did take Tom Smith a good few years to find the right compound that could create a satisfactory bang without burning the house down. And also, of course, he had to make the bonbon bigger to accommodate the cracking mechanism while keeping it the same shape. The, the whole of the Christmas cracker business in Islington also spawned another company. So uh, there was a company called Beck's Carnival Novelties which was based in what is now the Almeida Theatre in Islington. And they produced the little toys that went in Christmas crackers uh, in the early 1900s. So, yeah, crackers are big business. Yeah, I think the Smith brothers travelled the world looking for new toys and trinkets. The paper hats were introduced by a third son, Henry, and the love mottos were replaced by funny stories, some of them written by the best comic writers of the day although they soon descended into the awful jokes and puns we so love to groan about over the Christmas pudding. <laughs> Apparently there was a move at one point to get rid of the jokes, but they were so popular and there was such an outcry that the idea was dropped. Anyway, back to the fountain in Finsbury Square. The really cool thing, for me at least, is that if you look closely at the stonework above the drinking bowl, there is a carving of what looks awfully like a Christmas cracker. I love the fact that you always do this when I'm talking to you, Chris. There'll be something that I've walked by a million times and never known about it. On a Tuesday night, I sometimes do uh, the pub quiz. It's quite well known amongst London quizzes, the Prince of Wales in Highgate. And I'm very lucky that my train home goes from Liverpool Street and there's a bus, the 271, that goes straight from the Prince of Wales in Highgate down to the back of Liverpool Street and it gets into Finsbury Square. 
and the stop is in that southeast corner. So I'm dimly aware of having known and walking through the square generally. I know that there's a fountain there, but I've never really paid it much attention. So now next time I'm there, which will be in the next few days, I'm going to go and have a look at the Christmas cracker. And I shall think of you when I go and look at that. My, that's my um, talking of fountains. This isn't Christmas, but it is fountains. Uh, I was very pleased when I was at Lord's this summer. I popped into the museum because I'd asked around... Those of you that know Lords will know that the ground has been, there's a new Compton and a new Edgeridge stand as of a couple of years ago. And there was a gorgeous fountain, water fountain, still working, that you could go and fill your water bottle up from, uh, you know, on match days when you were there watching the cricket. And it was a gorgeous round one that the, the, the actual tap was pretty much at, at eye level. Uh, and but the stand, the new stand is so big that they had to take that one away. And I'd asked the last couple of times I'd been there, I'd asked to say, "Are you going to put this back into place somewhere in the ground?" And when I was in the museum this summer, I finally found someone who said, "Yeah, we are definitely going to put it back because it's one of the metropolitan." I always get this name wrong. It's Metropolitan Drinking Fountain and Cattle Trough Association. Have I got that? Yes. Um, started, of course, opposite the old Bailey, the first one with uh, what's his name. Um, Elizabeth Fry's nephew uh is it, was it Samuel Fry Samuel Gurney yes and uh so the yeah the drinking fountains are gorgeous and I shall go and check that Christmassy one out and I shall think of you Chris thank you Mark but um isn't that fountain by the old Bailey the oldest one in London 1859 yeah that, that that's an old one um and I think the one in Oldgate's an old one as well isn't it yeah we've got the parish pump in Oldgate and um there are is uh, the fountains in uh, the drinking fountains around the statue in Victoria Park? They're quite nice ones, uh, paid for by um, Angela Burdett Coots as a way to stop people drinking beer in the park. Uh, so you had like nice uh, drinking fountains with portable cups. The only problem is people still wanted to drink the beer, unfortunately. Yes, they often put drinking fountains outside pubs for that very reason. The old Bailey one is outside the Viaduct Tavern although the pub opened a bit later, I suppose, in the 1860s to serve the workers building the Holborn Viaduct. Well, it also were for outdoor workers. So by the end of the 1800s, they were starting to fix the water supply in London and improve the quality of its people's homes. But people work outside an awful lot, so the drinking fountains were thought of for them. And uh, then there was, there was a huge number of working horses uh, around, so the cattle troughs were put out for, those, for them, really. I love it when you see the cattle trough ones planted with flowers now. It's a sign of London reinventing itself, that you know there, there aren't many cattle wandering around the streets these days, but it's, it's great they've found a new use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, yeah. But um, going back to Christmas tradition, I mean, although we, we tend to think they were all invented by the Victorians, they were, in fact some of them anyway, based on traditions that went way back to the Romans and, and even pagan times. Instead of wishing each other Merry Christmas, the inhabitants of Roman London would go around saying, Yo, Saturnalia! Um, Saturnalia was the, was the Roman midwinter festival that Christmas replaced. And Saturnalia was full of feasting and drinking and giving presents, just as we do today. And then, in medieval times, the Lord of the Manor would fling open the doors of the big house... And the whole community would feast together. And wasn't it the tradition that the, 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 the rich householders served the servants? Didn't at Christmas, they, the servants sat down and... Yes, yeah. yes, that happened during Saturnalia. Yep, the masters waited on their servants. Yeah, but I mean, everything was turned upside down. 
and all the roles were reversed, and even the sexes. That's where the idea of the principal boy in a panto being played by a girl came from. Yeah, there's a great book uh, called uh, Around the Coal Fire by, it's, I don't think it's his real name, someone called Dick Merriman, which is published in 1732. And he's bemoaning the fact that very few masters do that for their servants anymore. And it's really a dig at the way Christmas has been abandoned, but also the stinginess of the servants. So it's a great account of how Christmas used to be celebrated. I have to say, if you did a lot of the things that they recommended doing as party games, you'd be in real trouble. So there's uh, lots of games of kiss chase and uh, blind man's buff, which seems to uh, be uh, you know, extremely dangerous where you're allowed to trip people up and things like that. Yeah, I think th- this business of, of role swapping is quite widespread, isn't it? And it goes back a very, very long time. Um, I know we all, or most of us know that in the army on Christmas Day, the officers and the NCOs serve the men. Um, but I was also reading quite recently that um, back in the day, and I don't know if it was just in London, but um, they would select a choir boy to become the bishop um, for a week or something like that. Um, and so the bishop didn't do anything apart from um, apart from uh, doing doing the um, consecration, the host, and, and you know that sort of thing that a kid couldn't do, but. Um, the, the child was in the bishop for a week um, and that was a tradition which once again it was the after the reformation uh, a protestant uh, situation wiped out that tradition um, and i don't know if it's come back or not but um, again this the puritan the puritan spirit if you like wipes out the sort of more pagan paganistic uh, christmas um, traditional ritual you know Actually, the uh, the tradition of the boy bishop is still followed in some places, I think, at Hereford Cathedral, for one, and Salisbury Cathedral. At Salisbury, um, at a service around St Nicholas's Day, which is 6th of December, St Nicholas, of course, being the patron saint of children and the original Santa Claus, I mean, at that service, a, a boy puts on the bishop's robes and mitre, sits on the bishop's throne, leads the prayers, and uh, even writes his own sermon. <laughs> Well, Mike's, uh, yeah, was talking about the Puritans. I mean, that was the low point of Christmas, really, in London. So they um, they banned feast days in 1644. Oliver Cromwell often gets the ba- blame for banning Christmas, but this was actually just a little bit before Cromwell was in power himself. But uh, you could, uh, any Christmas food was confiscated and given out to soldiers, and Christmas was just made a working day, and Parliament sat on Christmas Day. And there was no celebration of it at all. And even after the um, time of the uh, brief experiment of being a republic we have, it comes to uh, still a lot of dislike of Christmas. And uh, there's a newspaper called The Observator in 1702, which is condemning anyone who tries to celebrate Christmas, saying Christmas is a time of popery and paganism. It's hard to see how it could be an example of both those at the same time, but... They didn't really like the idea of celebrating saints' days, and they said it was a waste of working time celebrating uh, saints' days and Christmas days. And that was a real uh, popish thing. And all this bringing um, merriment into the equation with uh, winter, um, celebrating the central winter, that was a really pagan idea. So neither of those should be done in a, a Christian country. 
So that would have been sort of bleak Christmases from the end of the mid of the sixteen hundreds to the beginning of the seventeen hundreds. Isn't it a myth that Cromwell banned football? Didn't he? I think Cromwell liked football, didn't he? And that was one of the sports that was allowed to continue because he liked it. Have I got that right? Or yeah, I read that Cromwell also disliked, uh, rather he enjoyed uh, playing dice and cards. I'm not sure for certain, but. Um, Cromwell gets attributed to a lot of things which were actually just popularly uh, disliked anyway. There were a lot of Puritan people who disliked things and they were against them at that time. Yeah, maybe. But um, but you mentioned football, Mark. Um, and I guess the most famous Christmas football match of, of them all was between the English and German soldiers on the Western Front on Christmas Day 1914. England-Germany matches have had a sort of heightened intensity ever since. But football at Christmas actually was um, has a long pedigree. The very first inter-club football match in the world was played on Boxing Day in 1860. Um, it, was, it was a derby match between the two oldest football clubs, Sheffield and Hallam. And um, since then, the football league seasons always included a Boxing Day match. Originally, there were matches actually on Christmas Day too. Well, they used to play both, didn't they? They used to play the local derbies. They would play at one ground on Christmas Day and the next, the, 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 the other ground on Boxing Day, yeah. Yeah, well, well, football was played by working men and their only days off were Christmas Day yeah. and Boxing Day. And, and uh, they had to be local derby matches because there was no public transport on those days. One of the first Christmas matches is um, one of the first games in London played to the FA Rules is played in Battersea Park at Christmas. And uh, it's, it's a game which... Uh, it has to be curtailed because it's just getting so dark and they can't see the, the end of the game. But um, so there was a, they're playing to modern rules, but they haven't actually established how long the game was. Uh, back in the 1700s, they managed to have a football game on the frozen Thames at Brentford. Uh, so uh, that would be that would be a real Christmas game, a real risk of jeopardy as well for a you know, heavy tackle. I'm glad to say Brentford's um, football fortunes have improved since that time. <laughs> But another sport that has a Boxing Day tradition in London is horse racing, with the George VI chase run at Kempton since 1947. Well, one of my, my favourite traditions, uh, which touched on what Mark said earlier about laws, clearly, obviously, it's not a London thing, but um, the Boxing Day test match as well, which uh, is, is that every second year? It has to be, doesn't it? No, Melbourne has a Boxing Day test every year. Yeah. That's what I mean, yeah. Oh, do yeah. they? Yeah, so it's, so, it's, so it's us every second year. No, it's us every four years. It's it's England v Australia every every Boxing Day. Melbourne hosts a Test match, and once every four years, it's Australia against England. Yeah. Oh, I I didn't know that. I rather arrogantly thought it was just us. <laughs> I like the, the like the way that Mike's bringing back the Victorian tradition of Britain either ruling the world or thinking it rules the world. <laughs> well, Boxing Day is in the middle of the summer in Melbourne, isn't it? I.e. in the middle of the cricket season. And I think the first Boxing Day match was during the Ashes Test Series in 1950. The fourth day just happened to fall on Boxing Day and they've continued to play on Boxing Day ever since. Very good. Shall I do my? I don't know when you, Mike, when you, um, uh, Chris, when you want my. Uh, this is taking us back to Victorian times, but the one thing I'm just determined to show I did actually do some thinking in advance of this. Uh, the the one thing that I've got is that you could say that another Victorian London Christmas invention is the district line. 
uh, a complete coincidence, it, the district line opened on Christmas Eve 1868. Uh, the first section, which was between South Kent and Westminster. Uh, and it's just astonishing what Victorian, how, how much it grew. At the beginning of the 19th century, one in five people in Britain, or in England certainly, lived in cities. And by the end of the 19th century, one in five people lived in the country. You know, the massive urbanisation in London, obviously the biggest example of that. Just the sheer scale of what they were up to. And that section that opened Christmas Eve 1868 uh, to build the tunnels and the embankments with the cut and covered version of the building tube lines in those days. The company had their own massive kilns at Earl's Court to make the bricks. And they made 140 million bricks to build that first section of the line. And famously still at Sloan Square, that's in the original section, that bit where the River Westbourne goes over the tracks at Sloan Square and that square metal tunnel. If anyone didn't know that, and the next time you're at Sloan Square, look up whichever platform you're on, look up, you'll see that there's a square metal pipe carrying the, the river across the tracks. That's the way they had to do it. Uh, and they even had... They never actually did it, but they had permission to build a line across Wimbledon Common uh, to extend the district line. Uh, just the sheer scale of expansion of London in those days was just incredible. Did they have any uh, celebrations on the opening day on Christmas Eve? Was there a band playing or anything? Uh, not that I'm sure they did. It was uh, not that I know of specifically, but it was just five years after their Metropolitan Line. It was the same company that had built the Metropolitan Line, Metropolitan Railway Company. And then they built the district line, Metropolitan and District Railway, they became. Uh, which then, of course, leads you into the, all the stuff about the, the competition between the companies. Uh, the, at one point, it was two different companies running, it's, it's running the Metropolitan and the district line. And between them, of course, they make up most of the, cent of the circle line. There were just two little sections that you needed to build up the left and the right hand sides of the to make it the circle line and it took them decades certainly years to get the two companies to agree to even complete it to build a unified circle line and even when they did the metropolitan ran the clockwise services and the district company ran the anti-clockwise services and there were pretty much the same number of stations as there are now, I think, something like in the high 20s. And if you bought, if you accidentally went to the wrong ticket office, each station had two ticket offices, one run by the Metropolitan, one run by the district. And if you went to the wrong ticket station and accidentally, say you wanted to go from Euston Square down to King's Cross, that's, what, one, that's one station, isn't it? Uh, and you accidentally bought um, the wrong ticket they would make you travel the wrong way round 26 stations rather than because that was their service <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad to hear that it's some of the sort of arcane rules of railways today are actually probably simpler than that one of the um things uh that i loved about doing the research for my london book was the thing again this is like the traditions thing of things that this is the other way around, actually. This is something that is really quite recent, but seems like it's something from centuries ago. Uh, the sociologist Michael Young, who these days is better known as the father of Toby Young, the journalist, 
back in the 50s, Michael Young went to, it's just described as a Cockney graveyard, so somewhere in the East End graveyard. On Christmas Day, there was a tradition that, that families would go to the graveyard to spend Christmas, or at least summer Christmas Day, with their departed, with their with the dead relatives that you know they they'd lost in that year or previous years, um, and Michael Young, when he was there, the, the, the Christmas Day he was there, he saw one uh, family who'd taken along a pot of tea, because the granddad, whoever it was that had died, was always liked really liked drinking tea, so they took along a pot of tea and poured it onto his grave just as a little way of it was his grandfather actually, yeah, uh, as a as a little way of remembering him, having a cup of tea with him on Christmas Day. Well, I think that's rather a nice way to spend Christmas Day, sitting sitting quietly with family members you love and miss, and um, and thinking about happy Christmases you spent together in the past. And talking of happy Christmases, I, I guess maybe on that rather moving note, this would be a good place to wind up this podcast and um, and let the listener go and enjoy their own happy Christmas. So, thank you for listening, and thank you, Rob, Mike, and Mark for helping to launch The London Show. We will be back soon with more chat about London. And in the meantime, happy Christmas. Thanks very much. Happy Christmas, everyone. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Chris. All the best. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Rob. Mike. See ya.